Hello and welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex von Tanzelman, historian and screenwriter. And I'm Hannah Gregg, historian and historical advisor to film and television. So our guest is Jamie Glazebrook, who's the executive producer of the hit BBC drama Peaky Blinders and the creative director at Mandibat Productions. Now, Jamie has this amazingly long and outstanding CV of working in television, starting in the 1990s, with brilliant comedy shows like The 11 O'Clock Show, which I remember watching and laughing and, you know, tears of laughter falling down my face. Um, And many of his productions have won prizes. I won't list them all, but, you know, he's very cool at award ceremonies because he's there a lot. Um, So he brings behind-the-scenes power to the club. He brings skill. He just brings brilliance, um, sorting out Peaky Blinders for us, and he's sure, which is surely one of the biggest TV period dramas over the past 10 years. So I think that Jamie is a perfect club member. Well, that's good since he's making us an offer he can't refuse. Jamie, welcome to the History Film Club. It's lovely to be here, and what a lovely introduction. Far too complimentary. And thank you for omitting all the kind of really disgusting late night TV that I did in the 90s and all that sort of thing and just making it sound good. Well, to start with that, I mean, you know, you didn't really have much of a background in historical drama before Peaky Blinders. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, completely. I mean, the first thing I ever did was called the first TV program ever was called History's Turning Points. And it was for a channel called The Learning Channel, which is part of Discovery. This was in the late 90s where really no one had heard of kind of satellite TV very much and so on. And and we would be reconstructing part moments from history on a kind of micro budget. It's funny because I was just talking with, with my boss, Karen Manderback, about the New Forest. She was in the New Forest. And I said, oh, I went to the New Forest and um, you know, it's famous for its ponies. And we had to recreate the Korean War in the New Forest in two days with about four actors running round and round and round to um, make it look as though the Chinese army was invading. And now and then a New Forest pony would walk into the back of shot and we'd have to start again. So I'm used to that kind of historical reconstruction, but probably wouldn't want to go there again. So what inspired you then to go from these shows, you know, like the IT crowd and the 11 o'clock show, to take on this kind of epic historical production? Well, I started working with Karen, who also was really, her her background is comedy, um, you know, that 70s show and and Roseanne and in 1980s and and so on. And, um, And we started developing comedies and then a kind of idea that was part comedy came up and and we met this writer steve knight and for various reasons that show didn't happen but steve got in touch and said i've got another idea and that was a a sort of great meeting because although steve absolutely had had written a beautiful dramatic films he too had a background in comedy and sketch so um so it was a it was it's a great meeting of minds and we were looking at we just started developing drama scripts and we weren't on the lookout for a historical um, a historical drama. But I think, you know, part of what we'll talk about is maybe that brought a freshness to the whole thing. Well, it certainly feels very fresh. I mean, that opening scene in Peaky Blinders is such a classic where, um, you know, Tommy Shelby's going down the centre of the street on his horse. And immediately it feels like this kind of Western gangster film not like a period drama that we'd seen before on the BBC and it's dark and bleak and it sort of challenges all the stereotypes that we think of of country houses and nostalgia and I I think that's one of the things that makes it so powerful but it's incredible it's been so successful as well because I think people thought didn't they that to do a period drama you've got to do Downton Abbey you've got to have posh people dressed up and Peaky Blinders doesn't do any of that it's 
set in a completely different kind of historical world. That's that's lovely that you. I mean, that's that's exactly what really from the early early days we were aiming at. And you know, when we were meeting directors, the Otto Bathurst who who directed the first three episodes and really sort of set so much of what we followed from from the start. You know, first of all, he was saying, "You look if you're filming down a street." often in period dramas you kind of get a certain shot and a certain kind of you know loving shots of the scenery that has just been made but you if what if you just filmed it as if you were just go, walking down a, a, a normal street in modern britain where you wouldn't be looking up at the architecture or looking at children playing with a hoop and you know they would just be in the corner you'd just be following the story and so you know he said that and we absolutely agreed and he wanted to be in with the characters rather than be too too detached and we loved that as well and then I think he sort of wanted to bring a very modern style and attitude to every element, really, from the, of course, the haircuts, which which was, you know, took him weeks to prepare or, uh, to, to, to convince the cast to all go for it because they were, felt very extreme at the time, to then the soundtrack. And I remember very early on, we'd all agreed, let's not have sweeping strings because that's in all period dramas. What can we do that's different? And he fantastically, you know, went the kind of Nick Cave um jack white route um and then actually the casting as well i think you know we wanted to go for people who you didn't really normally see in 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 period dramas and you know obviously killian murphy's been in period dramas and brilliant in them but i I just think his 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 whole look and attitude is so modern and his his he's such an instinctive modern storyteller it feels Everything feels present and contemporary, and that's really what we're going for and and trying to make the audience connect with those characters in 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 the present so I mean we can talk about all the tricks we've developed to do that <laughs> oh yes, be, please yeah. which will, I mean they're sort of they're, i mean they're obvious they're sort of partly it's just being close and 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 giving the audience every opportunity to connect with the characters, but particularly connecting with Tommy. And so, you know, at the end of a scene, you'll you'll see Tommy and he'll be thinking and you're immediately thinking, hmm, what's he thinking? You know, and it, and so you're you're thinking in terms of that. You're you, it's kind of a bit plot, but it's mostly character that you're connecting with. And I think that's a, you know, it's a bit like Mad Men, another absolutely um, wonderful, you know, historical piece that's really contemporary. How many times is it at the end of a scene, Don Draper sits down and pours himself a whiskey and. I don't know what the actor's thinking, but I know I'm wondering what's Don thinking. What's what's Don going to do about what just happened? So I think there's a real connection, and and that'll go all the way through from that's how you shoot, shoot it, and and all the music actually is really meant to illustrate what's inside their heads. So we will tend not to use the music to go, oh, audience, sad bit coming, or oh, watch out, audience, someone's <laughs> around the corner. You actually just be be um. You know, Tommy, you'll be playing Radiohead because Tommy will be thinking, wow, this is just so, so messed up. And it is the whole, <laughs> <laughs> the whole style of that as well. I mean, to bring in that kind of, you know, very contemporary music, um, mm. you know, an amazing music on the soundtrack. I mean, you know, so many good things. Mm. Obviously Nick Cave up front and then, you know, Leonard Cohen and David Bowie and all sorts of incredible stuff. I mean, and that's been done before in sort of historical comedy things like A mm. Knight's Tale, but Peaky really kind of, I think, has sort of set a different... Does that help pull in this very different, probably younger audience than a lot of historical drama gets, do you think? Well, it's a very good question. I wonder that. and Because partly it's sort of... Um, 
I mean, the music isn't really, ma it's not all, I think it has been recently actually, because Anna Calvi's just like, and, and Jenny Beth uh, feels so contemporary, but some of the music, like the kind of Bob Dylan covers and Nick Cave, are sort of slightly older audiences music. I don't know, is that a terrible um, no, okay. generalization? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But I, I mean, I think that they, I hope that they appeal to everybody, but you know, they're kind of, they're kind of very, that what we found in it was it's kind of, that general sound is has been sort of bluesy influenced rock and roll, but with a contemporary kind of twist. So that would be Jack White. That would be, you know, Nick Cave, and and um, uh, and so on. And then it's sort of often, if you look at the soundtrack, it would be almost well. Are you six degrees of separation from Nick Cave? So, you know, we found <laughs> the Arctic Monkeys, or they've copied Red Right Hand, and and you know, PJ has a connection with PJ Harvey has a connection. And um, and the, uh, professional and personal and 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 so on and and so I think that just feeling that you're within actually quite a specific sphere has really helped. And then as the series has gone on, we've kind of broadened the palette a little bit. But we do try and keep the palette quite specific, so it doesn't feel, you know, again that was something that Otto didn't. He felt he said lots of shows you just have lots of bands, but you don't see many shows where there's just one or two artists played again and again. And that felt quite special and distinctive. If, we, if we're going to run through some of the tricks then behind Peaky Blinders that's made it what it is, can I ask if this is a trick, which is when I watch it, it always strikes me that everyone moves quite fast. And I love it because my, oh, the thing I hate when I'm on set with period dramas is everyone starts to walk incredibly slowly. Like no <laughs> one has anything to do, that no one is in a rush, nothing is urgent. Everything can take a hundred years, you know, and it drives me mad. Whereas in Peaky Blinders, it has much more of what I kind of associate, with, well, from the 90s with ER, like fast, you know, everyone's moving quickly. Cameras seem to make you feel like you're moving fast. Is that a trick or is that, that just is my well, no, you're totally right. And that was a thing that Steve Knight, the writer and creator, said really early on. He said, I want it to be fast. I want people to talk fast. And I want this to be moving fast. Because in their heads, they're not in a historical film. They're in the present. Yeah. Oh, like nothing's so going to happen totally right. until 1940. So we've got 20 yeah. years to get to the end of the street. <laughs> no, you're totally right. It's just like fast. There's not enough time to do everything that they want to do. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like I've got a special badge now. <laughs> and now, obviously, the show in terms of, I mean, you know, Stephen Knight, I think, is from Birmingham. I think he mm. sort of, you know, had his own family stories told to him about the Peaky Blinders. But this is a way that we have not seen Birmingham on screen before, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, I don't think we see, I mean, my mum's from Birmingham. I don't think we see Birmingham on screen very much, quite honestly. And then suddenly, this kind of extraordinarily characteristic look. I mean, do you think this has given. You know, is there a very strong connection um, with Birmingham? Do you do you, do you have lots of fans there? Do you think who are? <laughs> I think we do, and I, th I think we do, and I think it really. I mean, I hope we do. I think hope we still do, and I think it it, it certainly really really mattered to to us. And um, you know, my boss Karen is um, from Chicago, and she would all always think uh, you know in, in in the US I, I don't know if they still do well certainly do, don't now but they used to do test screenings in Chicago quite a lot and there was a had, was regarded as a certain place with a certain kind of heart and and Karen was really sensitive to really caring so much that people in Birmingham liked the show and it's hard because you know the accent's hard and and we can't actually film there very much and so on but we really do care about that audience and from from the second series onward, we've always had a screening there. You know, the first time the episodes have been shown have been 
there in Birmingham to a wonderful audience who really, I think, have now really embraced us. And again, that matters so much to Steve and he cares beautifully about, about Birmingham. He cares so much about it. And, you know, it's a kind of love letter. It's a brilliant say. I would say it's a love letter of Birmingham. And you actually look at the show and go, wow, that's some love letter. But it is a love letter to Birmingham. And, um, and, um, and again, I loved that thing of, yeah, it's from Birmingham and they're going to be the best dressed people and they're going to be really suave and cool. And, and all those things before we started almost felt like, well, how's that going to be possible? Because, you know, that hasn't, we haven't seen that in Birmingham and it really has been possible. So I, I just feel that kind of, bringing that cultural pride hopefully that is felt I I feel really honored to be part of that and in a sense do you think you probably because Birmingham isn't on screen very much I suppose you had in some ways free reign really I mean especially as obviously a lot of Birmingham was destroyed in World War II this is you know a Birmingham that Mm. doesn't really exist anymore you know you maybe had the chance really to kind of set a character for the city on screen it was it was definitely free reign and I think that was the other thing that you know if we're talking about history, there was, it's clearly a mythology. It is clearly really mythologized and heightened. And, you know, quite early on, you know, as you said, uh, Hannah, you know, you're watching him, you know, Tommy Shelby ride in on a horse and everyone's kind of saluting him and, and, and saying, morning, Mr. Shelby. And you realize you're in a Western and, and there are moments quite early on when you kind of pan back and you see sort of railway bridges miles up in the sky. And you kind of think, oh, I see this is, it's not, really steampunk but it's it's heightened somehow it's there's fantasy and and that was a thing from very early on it's almost like you're watching this whole world from the from from the point of view of a 10 year old and and all the men are so handsome and the women are beautiful and the cars are shiny and the horses are just extraordinary and mythical creatures and that's sort of the way that kind of wide-eyed excitement which I know that then if you go follow it down and go, well, that's morally challenging because you're, you're glamorizing this, these, these people in this world. And I think we really do invite um, viewers to come into quite thorny, thorny moral world. And, you know, you're taking a journey, but hopefully you, the viewer, know where your compass is. Even though it's so kind of highly stylized, I, I was really interested that the historians, because I did a bit of digging around to see what they were saying about things. And that they actually really love it because it evokes a mood, you know, and actually when we set things in the past, we don't always need to worry about making sure the details are exactly pitch perfect for the date that we're in, but actually capturing a mood of how people felt at a time can be incredibly powerful. And Peaky Blinders does that, I think. It's it's about the kind of excitement, but also the pain that people are suffering and after war. And it just makes you think in a different way about, about that time. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so successful as a sort of period drama is its mood rather than just its detail. I think that's it. And I think that you know, we were conscious that um, often, often in that that era, you'd see this sort of glamorous aristocrat country house world, and then you'd see very downtrodden, sort of sad stories that were justifiably sad and tragic because you'd see people absolutely beaten down by the establishment. And 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 what we wanted to do was to to tell a story about people who were kind of heroically going to take on the judgment and decide we're not going to be sad we're going to be heroes and we're going to be masters of our own destinies and um so you see that kind of downtrodden world but then you see the kind of fantasy that is possible that you can break through and you can take on the establishment and you can can do all those 
things that he's done. And I, there's a line in, in one of the series, in series four, I think, where Tommy, someone says, you know, aren't you worried that when the revolution happens, you'll be shot as a traitor to your class? And he says, I'm not a traitor to my class. I'm just an extreme example of what an ordinary working man can achieve. that's why we love it we can all yeah Yeah. um so i do think so i think i think that's really been a special thing to 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 have done because you know i think that as well i'm glad that you saw that because i know to start with some viewers thought oh it does looks like another very great period drama but i think this sense of humor and the wit and the speed um is all part of kind of finding a mood that's not really represented and and really really diving into it it also does vary quite a lot, doesn't it? I mean, I've heard you speak elsewhere about, I thought this is a really interesting observation, that in a sense, each series is in a slightly different genre. And I think mm. when people watch historical drama, they often think historical drama itself is a genre, but actually <laughs> it has many subgenres and there's a huge mm. diversity in that. I mean, so is that sort of a conscious choice to kind of take a different creative line in a way with every series? It's not, I mean, we've really, Steve doesn't write those out in the scripts, but usually as the scripts start coming in for every series, you know, myself and Karen Mandebach will look at each other and go, I think he's doing, I think he's doing, it's like a, a Western or, or it's a gangster. You know, obviously series one was a Western, had so much Westernishness about it. And then series two was sort of like a gangster thing, wasn't it? Like a kind of classic yeah. gangster movie. But then in series three, when he was, you know, having arguments, uh, um, on, on a staircase under the portrait of his dead wife, you're thinking, well, you're kind of in Alfred Hitchcock now and someone's in a room downstairs plotting the downfall of a country that I've not really heard of, but it's sure it's important. And, you know, you felt you were in... And I thought that was... Once he started swerving so far from traditional gangster into something that was psychologically strange and and exciting from that point and, and emotionally rich... Uh, I, no, I thought series three was well, the first of the series that was difficult to watch because Tommy Shelby doesn't do much winning in that series. But wow, it's it's everything started becoming so interesting there, I thought. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I think every series has its charm. But um, mm. but yeah, I mean, you, you obviously can. I mean, one thing about having this show run for so long, of course, is that people really do get to know those characters and they know those twists and turns. And of mm. course, I mean, on that basis, I also wanted to ask you, you know, as a fan, um, we were all obviously so excited that series six was going to begin filming in 2020. Then of course, like everybody else, you got shut down. Um, pandemic took that out, but is that still something that we can look forward to one day? It's everything is being, you know, I, I, all I can say is we're, we're sort of just addressing the situation as best we can. We really are. And, um, and I can't really say more than no, that. But, but no, I know. I'm just crossing my fingers. Addressing that's away. <laughs> we, can, we can fill the time by trying to figure out what the genre is going to be for the next yeah. series. So, yeah. you know, if we've had Western and everything, I don't know. How about romantic comedy next? Well, exactly. <laughs> that's coming up, isn't it? It's, it's the only one left. No, it was no, awful. Well, it was obviously, I mean, so many people have been affected in awful, awful ways. But, you know, that was it was sad that that's happened. You know, we are heartbroken, of course. Yeah, well, you know, uh, plenty of people rooting for you, just hoping very much, Thank I guess, that, that we'll get back on track. 
We should have a positive look to the future, though. So that means that I can ask Jamie a question that I'm always asked, and then I'm going to steal his answer when journalists mm. ask me. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is that, well, before before we had the coronavirus pandemic, I was always asked, oh, there's so much period drama. This must be a boon time for history in film and television. You know, do you think, Hannah, why is this the case? Why do we love history at the moment? And I never, ever know how to answer that. So, Jamie, is this a boon time for history on television and film? Um, this is, that's a really good question. And, and my answer is that I still think that the kind of something like Peaky Blinders is still, there's not many of them around. There's, there's some, there's sort of traditional crime stroke whodunits that are period. There's the kind of wonderful book adaptations. I think they'll always be around of actually, why is Jane Austen adapted and Charles Dickens adapted every other week? It's because the stories are, and the books are just so incredible and you really can. It's almost like translating a, a, um, a, 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 you know, the works of Balzac. You can do that every few years because they can always do with a fresh eye. Um, I think there'll always be those and there'll always be um, a kind of, slightly history lesson kind of drama because people are interested in what the kings and queens were doing and what was happening with the courts. Uh, but I suppose the complicated thing is that answer would be that shows like Peaky where you're kind of, I think, unearthing some of the less palatable truths about a, a historical past are, are always going to be slightly more rare. And, 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 you know, I think that when we started, the BBC absolutely welcomed us with open arms, but it was until series two that we found um, uh, audiences around the world started being interested and uh, and buyers around the world. And I think that, you know, there's kind of historical dramas and historical dramas, and there's a certainly demand for some kinds and, and other kinds take a little longer to get through to audiences. You know, I mean, I suppose Mad Men was a historical drama and didn't he pitch that every year for eight years or something like that before oh, it finally he? got yeah. picked up? Yeah, yeah, we always forget when something's a success <clears throat> that there's a story behind it of someone yeah. pitching and pitching and pitching for a really long time before it actually, you know, hits. And um, you always see something later through the lens of it being brilliant. You're like, well, of course, it was always going to be brilliant. You know, mm. people must have been biting your hands off. But that isn't how production works, is it? You never quite know what's going to run um, for a long time. Um, no, and... And you sort of don't know, you know, when you when you sit down to a to a historical drama, you sort of think, well, do I want to just be comforted or do I want to be challenged, and or do I want a bit of both? And and um, and sometimes you might feel that buyers want to comfort their audiences, and and sometimes more challenge them, and it's um, it's that 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 goes back and forth as well. So that's a very very non. Un unhelpful answer, really, isn't it? That I've given you, but it's I, I suppose it's a complex issue. Well, we'll just use that every time we're asked. It's complex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like history, it's complicated. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it is complicated. Yes. It is. Um, well, I mean, fascinating. Um, Jamie, we also like to ask every applicant to the Historical Film Club to nominate a favourite film or TV production um, that they've enjoyed for our club library. Uh, so I was wondering what you would like to nominate. Okay, well, I thought I would nominate Back to the Future 3. <laughs> awesome choice and why why are you picking back to the future three okay well it was it was a toss-up between that and inglorious bastards um and i thought that inglorious is brilliant but it's so intellectually brilliant it invites you in immediately while you're watching it to start thinking about it and um i what i thought back to the future three did was 
sort of get you thinking about history and how you rep- and how history is represented in a very in such a joyous entertaining way you didn't really feel that you're you didn't feel challenged but you sort of were being challenged and you know I'm, I don't know who's seen it recently but it's um <laughs> I mean it's like Pickett's he goes back to a western so I'm just going to talk assuming that no one cares about spoilers he has to it's go been back. out for a while. It's been, yeah, out. Say, yeah, it's been out for a few years. Michael J. Fox has got to go back to 1885 to save Doc Brown, his kind of mentor scientist friend. And so he gets into the DeLorean, you know, which is going to speed him in. And the place that they choose is an open air kind of uh, drive in cinema. And he's going to aim towards the screen. And right below the screen, there's a kind of, you know, it's 1955. There's a drawing of, um, you know, um, Native Americans or as they'll call it throughout the movie, Indians. And, um, and, you know, he says, hey, Doc, I'm going to drive right into those Indians if I keep going. And Doc says, don't worry, you're, you know, you're going to go back to 1885. Those Indians won't be there. Sort of winking to the audience is like, oh, OK, I see he's going to drive out and he's going to be real Indians. And I thought it was just such a brilliant image that he drives into a screen so it's a kind of acknowledgement that on one level when you're going into the past you're going into a fictional genre you can't not really because how else are we constructing the past is through stories and through genres and he's going to 1885 but he's also going to a western and then all the way through the movie you sort of see um moments where what he sees just plays up to exactly what all our cliches of a Western are. And then other moments where he's got it wrong and the and life there is kind of tougher than he thought. I mean, that's a great scene even when he sits around having dinner and, and someone pours him a glass of water and it's sort of coloured like mud. And he takes a bite of his meat that he's eating and there's loads of little pellets, all the shot from the gun come out. And, you know, all the things that you sort of don't really see in Westerns, the kind of acknowledgement <laughs> of that, you know? Um, so so that kind of so so you're sort of watching a brilliant meta western without without knowing and it's not sort of too clever clever but but you're invited into that and you know they do a bit of historical historical research they at one point it's almost like watching a weird fictional version of who do you think you are where they go to the library and start unearthing pictures of what it was like in 1885 and uh, and there's a great bit where there's a ravine that's named uh, that's named Clayton Ravine and then they save this woman from going into it. And they go, oh, my God, hang on, we shouldn't have saved her because she's called Clara Clayton. That's why it was called Clayton Ravine. <laughs> and, and they talk about the original version was, I think, Shonash Ravine. So it was, an, a, again, a Native American. So, so there's little t- tips of hats to the Native American history being there. And there's a little bit of a tip of hat to the Americans having their, you know, origin stories of the Irish settlers because... I don't know where they planned it, but obviously his name is Marty McFly, so they make them a fly family Irish. I just think it's just a, a joyous reflection on history on film and the lies that are told and the realities and and um, and how history can echo, how you can learn from history or not, and um, and it's it's fun and everyone should watch it again. It is fun. And well, by complete coincidence, I watched it again last night, you know, just... Oh, how amazing. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought, oh, I wonder what I should watch. Let's watch Back to the Future 3. And um, it is just such a joy to watch, actually. And it's so there's something so 
simple about the basic storytelling when they're in it that you have a time travel machine you go to a different place you get stuck and you've got to kind of find your way back you've got problem solving exercise in order to get your way back to where you're trying to to be and um and that's sort of it you know and and the relationships are really clean and simple it's between doc and marty they're just driving the story all the time and um it's just beautiful actually and you know i love the um i love the way they choose the acting as that because basically Michael J. Fox and oh my goodness, I'm forgetting who plays Doc because he's always Doc, but he's a fantastic actor. He's such a good actor. I can't remember his name. Christopher Lloyd. So, yeah. So, um, I mean, they're essentially kind of shouting all the time, aren't they? They're always talking like this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and obviously, intentionally, it's beautiful because they just keep the energy up. There, there was no energy lag in that film. They just like power you through. And then when you go into the bar, um, there's a bar scene and there are these guys sitting around a table and they really look like old weathered Western types. And I think that some of them are kind of characters who were starred in Westerns in the 1950s and 60s and they look like the real deal, you know, and they've been made up brilliantly with kind of very yellow decaying teeth and all that sort of thing. So there's a kind of great, well, what's authentically Western and what's not. As you know, and you'll remember uh, Hannah, he goes out dressed in these sort of ridiculous pink kind of leather yeah, yeah. Kind of 1950s <laughs> idea of a cowboy. <laughs> yeah. And then puts on a Clint Eastwood poncho. So it's just another version of a fictional cowboy. So it's a... Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah I did good. also dip into Back to the Future 2, and which takes you forwards to 2015, you know. And that was mm. just kind of weird and alarming because the view of 2015 when the film was made is not what 2015 looked like at all. Turns out so, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you see, this is what I love about making historical movies rather than future movies, is that uh, it's actually much harder for people to prove you wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, we also, Jamie, will ask you for a pet hate that can, we can ban from the club. Um, now, this could be anything. It could be a film or TV production that you that is just a bugbear to you. It could be a particular thing that happens on set. It could be anything you like. So what is it that really gets to you? Well, I think we alluded to this before, but I think I love the music of Vaughan Williams and, and I, I feel that that sort of sweeping string kind of thing that you get that sort of basically says to the audience, relax, we're in a, we're in a historical drama, I, I, I wish would sort of stop because it's, it, it's, first of all, it's often not suited to what you're seeing anyway. It's, you know, Vaughan Williams was whatever 20th century and it's played over everything from, you know, um, mid 18th onwards as if that's the kind of historical movie sound. So it's never really right, but it's kind of got fixed in people that that's what a historical movie should sound like. And I remember <laughs> the sort of shock of like, you can't play Jack White and all of that over this. It's, it's but that's sort of not that much worse than putting Vaughan Williams over a Jane Austen film. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of, so yeah. I just feel anything to kind of shock people out of, okay, what does it, re what would it sound like would be interesting. I mean, I know that it's lovely to listen to and it's funny that, one of the movies I did look again is this amazing Czech New Wave film called Marketa Lazarova, which is sort of a Middle Ages film. And they, although it's not totally authentic by a long way, but they certainly try to get you to think what people were, were what music people were imagining in the Middle Ages. And I do understand that that makes for a slightly tough three hours. But I, I would still say, <laughs> let's 
let, let's let's ban the sweeping strings for a bit. Oh, I don't. Yeah. I don't. I feel slightly conflicted though about that because I am very associated with pole dark, which has a sweeping <laughs> string <laughs> Vaughan Williams style um, soundtrack. So it's kind of hard for me to agree one hundred percent. But I think I think we can say that we should strive for as much creativity as possible yes. in terms of um, in terms of the sound. So mm. and diversity. Not all of history sounds the same. Just as everyone doesn't walk slowly, I think yes. that is a very very <laughs> fair point. Um, well, wonderful. Well, I think we've considered your application, Jamie, and um, I, you know, no need to uh, send in the Peaky Blinders. I think we can certainly admit you to the history. Oh, thank Film goodness! Club. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> now it is it is conventional that um, obviously uh, we have to all imagine that we're in a lovely club at this point. Um, that we offer to buy you a drink from the bar. Um, what do you think the Peaky Blinders would order? Um, I think well, I think it's going. I think that the whiskey day drinking, the whiskey drinking days are. I think we should be heading towards wine now. Wine, I think. <laughs> very yeah. civilized. Very civilized. Yeah, we're getting educated. <laughs> I don't, the Peaky Blinders drink beer, don't they? Before you know, if they're trying to they think there's something difficult ahead, they stay so yeah. yeah. So let's um let's stick to the beer, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excellent. And we can all stay off the opium. We don't need to get into that. 100% off that stuff, yes. <laughs> yeah, Seems like a bad idea, doesn't it? Okay. Yeah. Don't do that in our club. Thank you very much. No. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jamie Glazebrook, for speaking to us about Peaky Blinders, Back to the Future 3, and all the joy of historical film and TV. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening. You've been listening to The History Film Club with Alex von Tunzelman, Hannah Gregg and Jamie Glazebrook. It was produced by Nat Tapley for Gloaming Productions. Music